Hello, welcome to another Music Ally Focus with me, Music Ally's editor, Joe Sparrow. And in this episode, we're joined by Piers Henwood, a Grammy and Juno-nominated artist manager and musician. Now, a while ago on Music Ally, Piers wrote us a guest post about, quote, the implications of the pressure placed on artists to succeed in a needy industry and an always-on culture. So we wanted to talk to him more deeply about this topic and the relationship between fans and artists and the pressure that artists are under and where that pressure comes from. Now, each Music Ally Focus episode analyzes one meaningful music business topic at a time. And so this podcast is going to be quick. It should take about the same amount of time as the aptly named David Rush could hypothetically, very hypothetically, stack 2,000 cream-filled biscuits. David stacked 38 cream-filled biscuits in 30 seconds in 2020. And for those of you who are wondering which cream-filled biscuit offers the greatest stackability... The photographs show him posing with a packet of Oreo Thins, which we presume offers the greatest biscuit density to height ratio for stacking purposes. Now, talking of things piling up on top of one another, artists are under increasing pressure to do, well, lots of stuff. Writing, recording and releasing music, creating TikToks, collaboration, communication with fans, going on tours and so much more. Piers Henwood says it's about time we take another look at who the customer is here and help artists retreat from a punishing, always-on approach. So I chatted to him about what a healthy and sustainable creative experience is for the people who ultimately are at the centre of everything that we love about music. Let's talk to Piers right now. Well, I'm very happy to welcome Piers Henwood to the podcast. Hello, Piers. Hi, Joe. Thanks for having me. Uh, Pleasure. Now, Piers, uh, you wrote a really interesting guest post for us a while ago, and we're going to unpack that a little bit. But first of all, could you just briefly give us a little bit of uh, background and context. Who are you and what do you do? Sounds good. Well, I'm a longtime artist manager. I've been managing bands for about the past 20 years based in Western Canada. We also run a small record label that we started during COVID. And I started my career as a musician myself. And as is the case with many managers, it's a path that doesn't necessarily have a formal career path to getting into being an artist manager. So You find people coming from different backgrounds. In my case, I came from the background of playing in bands. I had a relatively successful Canadian band called Jets Overhead that toured the world and reached some pretty high points in terms of moments in our career. We played Coachella. We played Bonnaroo. We, you know, made it overseas to Europe a bunch of times. We were nominated for Juno here in Canada, which is sort of our Grammy equivalent. And so my sort of pedigree in the business came from starting out as being an artist. And at one point, I decided I want to transfer some of the skills I learned from sort of self-managing my own projects into managing other artists. And we started an artist management company about 20 years ago with my partner, Nick, and we took on our first clients, Tegan and Sarah, back in 2002 and helped shepherd a, you know, a very successful career with them that saw them reach very high peaks around the world and certainly you know became Canadian icons. And yeah. I think my mindset as a manager has always been based on the fact that I started out playing in bands and self-managing my bands. And indeed, I actually still play music myself. I'm a believer in lifelong creativity. I'm a believer that you should always do something creative, even if you're no longer destined to be touring the world or traveling, you know, the Trans-Canada in a, in a, in a tour bus. So, uh, yeah, my perspective and certainly one of the things that I wanted to convey in the article I wrote for Music Ally was, you know, some of the, I think, challenges that the average person doesn't see behind the scenes when it comes to being a successful artist and indeed dealing with fame. And so 
my, my mindset as a manager has always been to try to remind myself of what it was like in my case when I was playing on stages around the world and balancing the many things that artists are asked to balance. And nowadays we're asked to balance even more in the age of social media and the 24-hour news cycle. And so, yeah, I think it's an important conversation, both for people in the industry to understand the artist's mindset and really what they're going through, and then also even the general public to understand the limitations on what we ask of our famous artists and our successful artists. Yeah. I mean, you... This article you wrote for us, and I'll put a link to it next to the podcast. But you, you, you sort of in it, you talked about the the neediness of the of the music industry, and it's never satisfied. You know, it, it can suck in more of an artist and more and more, and and the pressure on artists today. And you sort of proposed a new way of thinking about the relationship between fans and artists, and and how that there was a sort of room for empathy in that about how artists. Are what they're expected to do from a fan perspective and that cascades all the way through to label pressures, etc. Is it it's a very brief way you could put, put that into a, a nutshell in yeah. terms of what, what you proposed? Yeah, we'll see if I can remember my article, of, of course. Yeah, <laughs> I think the, the article sort of had two main hooks or theses in my mind. The first was that it's difficult to put the creative process and the artistic relationship between sort of, you know, artist and fan into the traditional consumer or customer and product lens. And so I started by observing that, you know, in our, in our general business language, we tend to have cliches like the customer is always right. We tend to focus on great companies that have, you know, transformed the world like Amazon, who famously have a, a philosophy internally called customer obsession that says that all decisions should be made working backwards, starting from the customer's needs. And I think we can all agree that in the arts, we tend to not want to think that art is made in such a premeditated fashion. We tend to not want to think that our great artists and our favorite bands sort of start by saying, well, what do my fans want? And I'm yeah. going to do that. We tend to want to believe, and I think it's true for great artists, that the artist is following their own muse and pursuing a path that they deem is right for them artistically at, at the given moment. And hopefully fans in the world and culture comes along with them. And so I just observe that, uh, you know, in a world of typical business, it's always the job of the business or the product or the service to satisfy the customer. Whereas in the arts, it's almost the reverse where we want to bring along our audience with us and we want our artists to sort of lead us to new places. Um, and then secondly, I observe that although the fan is the obvious first customer for an artist, there's a lot of things that go on behind the scenes in the music industry that pull the artists in different directions that the average person, the public doesn't see. And I posited that some of these relationships may have similar dynamics to a customer and sort of product relationship. And an example is the infrastructure that supports an artist behind the scenes. So, a, you know, a successful global artist will typically have managers, agents, record labels, publishers, etc., And all these people are sort of first gatekeepers to getting the artist's art out into the world. A record label is a great example where we don't typically think of the record label as a customer of the artist. Indeed, you probably would rather think of it the other way, that the label is serving the artist. And indeed, the label's job is to get the artist's music out there. But you know, any, any record label is having to make creative and financial decisions in terms of who and how they're supporting artists. And in doing so, the artist has to satisfy the needs of an infrastructure, in this case, a record label, before their music even has the opportunity to be marketed globally. And so the artist ends up with a lot of pressures behind the scenes before even worrying about how their music is going to affect the general public. The artist has to be very concerned with 
you know, does the record label like the new album? Is there a single? Is there belief? Are departments activated? And certainly it's the job of managers and artists to sort of navigate that complex relationship of bringing music out into the world. Uh, but it's a very, you know, it's a very complex and nuanced process to get multinational companies to believe in a product, in this case, a song or an album or an EP or what have you. And a lot of that stuff that goes on behind the scenes is not sort of known or visible to the public. And I think that creates a different set of pressures on the artists that the average person might, might not understand. So the artist is left sort of having to satisfy the, the, the fan in different and unique ways, then also having to satisfy the infrastructure behind the scenes in different and unique ways. Mm. And that's in today's industry is more multifaceted than ever, even if you look into one sector. So you look, looking at just communication with the world from an artist's perspective, you know, there's dozens, let's say, of ways of communicating and it's overwhelming. And, and that's just one element. That's just sort of individual marketing, uh, if you like, and communication towards fans. So we've got artists being pulled in so many competing directions including, as you said there, many, many that the general public can't see, you know, without knowing what's going on behind the scenes. And that clearly is leading artists towards uh, burnout or, or an alternative is self-abuse, you know, turning to uh, mm. self-medication or whatever. Um, with your background then as an artist and then looking at the artists you work with now, are you able to identify those? Po- How do you identify those points in advance without getting that far down the track? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, how to keep an artist healthy during, say, a busy global campaign is very difficult. I think that's one other thing that's different about the sort of classic business language in the sense that the artist is a CEO of a multinational company at the end of the day, but it's a CEO that really can't delegate the core responsibilities. So. In any great business, we know that the leaders, one of their big jobs is to delegate and to separate themselves from the day-to-day operations of a business. But when you're an artist, you are a single, indivisible human being who is essentially the CEO of a multinational arts company, but you're irreplaceable. You can certainly record music and people can listen to your music on, on, on a streaming platform without you present in the room. But nothing can drive a career unless the artist is driving it. And it's the artist needed to go out and play shows. It's the artist needed for interviews. It's the artist needed to do social media. And so I think that's the first you know, major thing to observe is that the artist, can, they can delegate certain things. Obviously, an artist doesn't do everything. They have a team around them. They have record label, manager, agent, et cetera. But at the end of the day, the core responsibilities that the public sees the performances, the interviews, the interactions, the actual creation of music, it it can't be delegated. So it's a very unique kind of leadership role that the artist Mm. has to play. And that is, I think, uh, one of these areas where the artist can end up being, you know, constantly pulled in different directions and also never knowing when is enough. And I think that we haven't specifically sort of talked about social media yet, but I think a backdrop to this also is just the evolving landscape of social media, whereby, we're constantly in content creation mode nowadays and and the streaming world sort of burns through music so quickly. There's just a constant need to be creating. And back in the day, we were able to, I think possibly have slightly more healthier cycles where you work, woodshed, write, record, release market, and then take a break. And nowadays, really, if you take a break, you sort of risk 
losing your position in the algorithm and you have these sort of hidden fears. No one really understands the algorithm, but if you're not posting every day, maybe you're going to get hurt, et cetera, et cetera. And so I also posited in my article, you know, sort of the unique point of view that you could almost think of social media platforms as a customer of the artists nowadays too. And although it's not a traditional customer, certainly the algorithms and the social media platforms behave similar to a customer in the sense that they, you know, give feedback on what, the algorithm likes and what the algorithm doesn't like and therefore what's propagated in feeds and what's sent out to the, to the world. And so the artist also has to start thinking about these social media platforms in a very different way. And I think that's been a, a, a huge part of, you know, creating burnout in, in amongst today's generation of artists is the, is the need to constantly create. And so I think that the, when you ask the question, like what can we look out for and how as a manager, can we sort of be wary of this stuff? I do have answers to that, but I, I think maybe I'll, I'll say one other thing, which is I've observed that, you know, this moment in time where we're sort of engaging all these new platforms, it feels to me like we are almost in a you know, moment in time that's similar to space exploration, where we're putting human beings through new things that human beings have never been through. And so you think about sending people to the moon or eventually to Mars or what have you, and you can kind of, you know, wrap your head around the notion that the physical aspect of the human being is going through things that we've never had to go through. But right now in society, I'd posit, you know, the human being is going through psychological and emotional things that human beings have never really had to go through. And, and that's, you know, on account of social media and the need to create constant dialogue and also the sort of the nature of fame now in this current world. And so we know that the, the people on the vanguard of the sort of biggest moments of fame in our culture's history from whoever, Elvis to Michael Jackson to whoever, we know the incredible struggles they dealt with and the fact that they were sort of dealing with a type of, you know, input into the human body that no one had ever had to deal with before. The number of people that wanted a piece of them, both literally and metaphorically, the number of people that wanted a piece of their time, the number of people that were reliant on them. It's a very unique blender that the artist gets put in when they have to deal with that level of fame. And I think now even niche artists who have, you know, a dedicated 50,000 person following on Instagram or, or Twitter or what have you, they have all this data and requests and input coming at them. And it's a very different thing to learn how to deal with. And so I think we're still learning how to navigate that healthily. And I don't think we know yet. And I think we're sort of like the first generation as people working in the industry and, and our artists of this generation are the first generation that are really having to learn this. And we probably won't know fully what's working, what isn't for a few years here, because in general, the learning point is typically when you're burnt out, take a break. But yeah. with social media, we're told you can't take a break. So it's completely paradoxical. <laughs> yeah. And it feels, it feels a bit like to, to, to focus on social media, we we're really not just talking about the platforms and the interaction there. But like you say, social media is so tightly meshed in with success now because what happens on social media cascades into ticket purchasing, fan base. It, it will influence how you get playlisted on um, DSPs. It, and it's, it's really the window into so many pathways towards success. But at the same time, burnout isn't it and it's um we're also seeing with smaller artists as you mentioned there perhaps they don't have the luxury of a team around them maybe it is them self-managing and how do you learn when you're young hungry for success and, and essentially vulnerable because you don't under you haven't got experience you, you, 
like you say, you're throwing them, they're being thrown out there into the void, aren't they? Yeah. Uh, you, you must talk to a lot of artists. Um, what, what are, what is a sort of a finger on the pulse of how they feel about the pressures that are on them at the moment? I think most artists feel fatigued by it and have a difficult time, especially if they become successful expressing some of that fatigue. And I think that's one other overall theme I'd say about both my piece and my thoughts about sort of fame and success in the arts is that we don't really welcome artists and successful entertainers complaining about their lives. And that's understandable in the sense that, you know, the average person thinks, well, this person's living their dream. They're getting to, you know, pursue creativity for their life. They get to tour around the world. They get adored by millions or thousands of fans. Like what's there to complain about? But the truth is there's a lot to complain about in any person's <laughs> life, <laughs> including a successful artist. The artist is, you know, dealing with so much pressure, dealing with a lifestyle that's constantly in flux and in motion, living out of suitcases, dealing with the stress of performance, dealing with a mindset where often the biggest achievements in an artist's career are difficult to enjoy. When you think about getting that first big late night TV performance or playing the big show at Glastonbury or Coachella, it's difficult to enjoy those moments. They're stressful. Your whole life has led up to them. You've got a whole team relying on you. So these sort of pinnacles of success when you think, boy, that artist must be living the life right now. I think a, you know, a significant portion of the time they're not necessarily completely happy behind the scenes and they're struggling to deal with all of the things they're balancing. And so I think it's a problem in our society that we don't have more honest conversation about the ups and downs of success in the arts. And, and the fact that we don't tend to want to hear uh, our, you know, famous, you know, artists talk in reality about what it's like and some of the pressures, we don't like to hear the complaints is a problem for a society because we are, putting, as we've said, putting these artists through new experiments in the human condition, especially when it comes to social media. So I think we should want to hear what they're going through because they're literally like science experiments in my mind. Sounds a bit crass, but we should be taking the observations and the data from what they're going through and learning from them. Do you think that the sort of the um, influential elements of an artist's career, like, for example, record labels, management companies, things like that, do you think they have... a duty of care to perhaps in, uh, invest more carefully into what an artist does and s- provide support around them f- f- as they're putting them into this experiment. It, it, it should more yeah. be done, really, in, in a fundamental way. I think so, for sure. And I think ideally that's certainly the job of a manager. A manager's job is to protect the artist and to be by the artist's side through thick and thin. And so traditionally... And still to this day, that certainly has to be part of the manager's job description. I think stereotypically, you'd often say that the record label had less of that mindset because the record label was about maximum investment in a given moment when something's happening. And the manager's job sometimes was to act as the buffer between artist and label and to calibrate what's possible and what isn't and to think more long term while the label's thinking about this one moment in time to support this single that's happening right now. And, uh, I do think there is a change, though. Like you certainly see, you know, some of the major labels and publishers are offering more mental health support services within the framework of their offerings, I think. And I think that, uh, you know, the the manager's job, though, for sure, has to take that into account, as does the agent, because the agent's rooting the artists around the world. And back to the idea that the, the artist can't delegate their duties, especially their performance duties. When you're rooting a band around the world, touring a successful release, it's very fatiguing. And the agent, along with the manager, are the ones planning that 
you know, geography and calendar and, and they, they both really have to take things into account. I think that the, the manager's job, we, we were mentored a little bit by legendary manager, Elliot Roberts, who is Neil Young's longtime manager and Joni Mitchell's manager. He unfortunately passed away a few years back, but he was who had first discovered Tegan and Sarah and Elliot was famous for saying no, especially in Neil Young's case. He was famous for, you know, creating some of the allure around Neil back in the day was because they would say no to so many things. They wouldn't do press. They wouldn't do things on show days. Uh, They would just say no to a lot of things. And Elliot told us he thought that that was like a massive part of why the allure and mystique around Neil had built up so much over so many decades because they were hard to get to and they'd say no. And nowadays, especially in the social media era, saying no is very difficult. And because we have sort of more power to affect our own careers, we have fewer gatekeepers, you know, sometimes people in the industry will say, well, if you're not doing it yourself, if you're not posting every day on socials, if you're not making new videos every week, et cetera, et cetera, then you're not sort of taking your career in your own hands. And I think there's a small part of that, which is absolutely valid and true, which is to say that, you know, the beauty of today's industry is that there are a lot of gatekeepers that have been removed and there's more power within the hands of the artists and you can self-actualize more than ever without waiting for gatekeepers to give you approval. But on the flip side, it also makes it much more difficult to calibrate boundaries around your own work, your work ethic, Mm. when to, you know, when to output, when to create things tangential to music. And you mentioned at the start, the, the idea that actually an artist has many customers, including you know, these platforms, the, the, the kind of information they, they put out there. Um, and I guess a part of the process of figuring, like you say, it's very, it's very hard to say no and it's very easy to say yes, but then lots of little tiny yeses suddenly become overwhelming. So where should an artist, what's your advice to artists then in terms of where should they start in terms of customer number one? Where, like... I mean, there's a thousand ways to slice this cake, yeah. but is there is there a fundamentally number one customer that they should listen to and, and satisfy first? Yeah. Well, in my article, I sort of had a fun thesis that maybe the number one customer needs to be the artist themselves. And it's, right. it's paradoxical to think about oneself as one's own customer, but it harkens back to this idea that we like to think our artists are writing for themselves or for a higher purpose as opposed to writing in a premeditated way for the market or for fans. And so... I sort of posited this idea that maybe the ideal highest customer of the artist is their future self. They're writing to, uh, you know, the person in future themselves that will like, you know, like their creation, be happy with what they've done and also, you know, treat their own career in a sustainable way. And so I think that that's sort of my non-traditional answer that, you know, the artist just has to serve themselves at the end of the day to, to have a healthy mm-hmm. career and balance. But it, it's worth mentioning that we, you know, we have to acknowledge though still in our industry, clearly the fan is the obvious first customer and no artist is going to want to get on stage or few artists want to get on stage to play for an empty room or to release music that's listened by no one. And so there is a balance there where we have to accept that the, you know, the fan is traditionally the number one customer, but then the artist needs to also think of themselves and their future uh, creative being as their own customer in their own way because they're creating for themselves hopefully besides creating for the masses and i'd also add that the you know the fan is customer it is a unique relationship we've talked about this a bit already but just thinking about more bullet points on that you know in most businesses you don't need to be protected from your own customers yeah. <laughs> if you run a hotel 
You welcome the person that checks in. You don't run away from the person who checks in at the front desk. When you become a successful global artist, especially of fame, you need to be protected from your own customers, your own fans. And most fans love and adore you, but you end up having dangerous fans. That's another thing that people don't see behind the scenes is the amount of stress that, uh, you know, online, you know, difficult consumers, customers, fans online cause for artists. This transfers over into the real world with stalkers and, and you know, death threats. And, and you don't need to be at a Taylor Swift level to be experiencing that kind of difficulty from fans. Any music that touches fans deeply has the potential to also touch people deeply that may not be completely healthy. And sometimes people can, you know, take art in the wrong way and believe art's being written for them or is so personal to them yeah. that they end up with a, you know, a, a unique sort of mindset in their relationship with the artist. And so I think it's worth noting that it is very unique that yes, you know, artists, successful artists also need to actually be protected from their own customers, their own fans in some cases. And a lot of artists end up with, you know, I hate to use the word love hate because I think artists love their fan bases at the end of the day. And we know artists always stand on stage saying, yeah. you know, my fan base is the greatest and we love you. And that's true. They make it all possible. But we also know that it's very stressful behind the scenes to have fans that constantly want a piece of you that, mm -hmm. uh, you know, may criticize your latest work and ask you to return to the, the style of writing you did 10 years ago. Yeah. Fans are very critical. Album, yeah. And I think this is an example where it's hard for artists to really speak their truth because you never want to be complaining about your fan base or the nature of your success or fame, but it is very difficult to please music customers and fans. That's a very tricky, um, yeah, a tricky point, isn't it? Because it's a little bit, there's some analogy there with, uh, for example, how much artists or songwriters get paid from streaming platforms and you, you fans, it's, it's amazing really in the modern era, they're fully aware now of what rec master recording rights are and, uh, what the royalty rates are from various streaming platforms, which is kind of wild, but they know that. And they're, and they're, I think, happy to support their artists and say, hey, we want them to be paid more. But then there's there's the, there's the difficult part of that, isn't it? Which is, well, if you want them to be paid more, you've got to pay more um, because that's how the, the structure works. And is this is this something that, not not to criticise fans here at all, because fandom is, is a beautiful thing, but is there almost a sort of reflective point for the fans as well who sort of, should we as music fans think instead of passing off blame to saying, well, you know, the, the business is pushing them too hard, which is, which is true, right? There is, there is those pressures there. Or, uh, social media is asking too much, but should we, the fans say, Hey, look, these are our favorite artists. We want to protect them. And how, how do we step back? Is, is that, I mean, that's very tricky, isn't it? But is that a thing we should talk about? I think so because we're in the era of trying to understand how to sort of maximize the value of super fans. We know that, as you said, the streaming platforms and so much of music now is passive and, and difficult to fully monetize. And so, you know, starting with the thousand true fans model that's been talked about a lot in our industry, we know that right now starting a successful career really begins with monetizing the core group of super fans. And so I think it's worth knowing though, there's a, there's a healthy boundary to being a super fan and an unhealthy boundary. And, right. you know, the healthy boundary of being a super fan is doing more than just listening to your artist on your favorite streaming platform. It's, it's going to the show, it's buying merch, it's following the artist's culture and spreading the word about the artist. But then there's an, also an unhealthy side of that potentially where the super fan may become overly obsessed or what have you may ask too much of the artist. And, and, and this gets back to the 
the idea that the artist is a CEO that truly can't delegate everything the way a traditional CEO can. The artist can't say yes to every selfie. The artist can't say yes to every interview. The artist can't play every city and every territory. And so there are trade-offs. And uh, that's where, as fans, we have to be understanding of what's going on behind the scenes. Just because the artist isn't playing your city, it doesn't mean they're willfully ignoring you or <laughs> what have you. You just have to accept that there's a human being and an infrastructure and a team working behind the scenes to move this artist around the world. And it's very complex deciding where and how to spend time. Which is weird, isn't it? Because we're, we're more connected than we've ever been in history, you know, and we, we, we're more understanding. In some ways, our empathy for other people is much higher than it's ever been in terms of understanding. We, we see the, the, the human being at the center of the superstar, and yet technologically we're sort of in and, and maybe psychologically we're sort of incentivized to keep pushing for more aren't we it's it's a, and at the same time you've got a music industry that is you mentioned super fans well we hear it repeatedly from various companies saying well how do we how do we maximize what we get from the super fans his five versions of the album on different colored yeah. vinyls you know that, that's that's there's a there's a complex set of responsibilities there isn't it when, when you say no i'm not gonna i'm not gonna push the super fans for more and it's a bit of a two-way street isn't it and like like you said it's not we're not we're not there yet we haven't got that balance worked out but if we were to project forward a little bit and say okay we, you know we're, we're going to get that balance more right so that our artists are protected and not burning out our fans are still really well served super fans feel super served and everyone makes money. What what sort of changes could happen? Do you think that perhaps our listeners might want to implement for artists they're working with that would that would help protect them, but also keep all, everything else satisfied in there as well? What does a what does a future better version of of of, of this world look like? Yeah, That's it's a big a great, question. <laughs> it's a it's a great question. I uh, I don't have a perfect answer because I think so much of what we're talking about is tied to sort of structural changes in the way our industry and the way media is working. And so as an easy first answer, I'd like to say we should stop peddling fear that if you don't post X number of times on a social media platform, that the algorithm will sort of demote you. And so it may or may not be the case that the algorithm will demote you, but certainly none of us truly can look under the hood of these social media platforms. None of us or very few of us have the technical understanding either way to really understand the, the way an algorithm is working. So I think it's one of these areas, it's, it's like taking your car to the mechanic and you just have to kind of rely on whatever they said hmm. uh, is the problem. You know, we throw around these things like, well, if you stop doing this, you're, you know, your, your followers aren't going to see your post and the algorithm is going to hurt you. We just have to take it at face value and we can never ask ourselves, well, what would it be like to take a break for X number of months from social media? You know, we sort of peddle fear around these possibilities, but ideally I think that, uh, you know, the, the previous notion of more of an, a traditional album cycle was helpful in one way, I think, with regard to potentially mental health in that there was sort of more of a beginning and an end to cycles back in the day. And this, mm. this came with downsides too, in the sense that there's no reason to sort of pretend that music has to be put into an X number of month period and then it's over, then you take a break and then you start again. But I think it's very essential to human health that we both sprint and rest. And so, you know, you read a lot of productivity literature that talks about sort of the value. Great work is often done through sprinting and resting as opposed to like a constant sort of mid-level yeah. exertion of effort. 
And so I think like we're living in a society where we're kind of asked to have a constant mid-level exertion of effort. And I think like a machine, exactly. machines are good at. Yeah. They just keep going. Right. But we're not, like, we're not designed that way. Yeah. And I think whether you're, whether you're working the business behind the scenes like us, or whether you're creating art, it's kind of that constant mid-level exertion of effort that gets really fatiguing. Yes. You've made the album, but now you've got to release a new single a month later because the streaming platforms need more content and you got to remix everything. You got to make more content. And so I think that the, the sort of sprint rest analogy, which is more applicable in other industries, I think is maybe useful for us to think about, even though it's difficult because we're asked to constantly stay present in our fans' minds on social media. But ideally, I think that we need to give our artists proper time to rest and, and recuperate. And artists need time away from the spotlight. You know, it's very fatiguing, obviously, having people clawing at you and wanting your time and deciding what to say yes and no to. And I think that breaks for artists are essential they're also essential to replenish creative juices and i think we will actually deepen you know the output of our great artists when we allow them to take breaks and to travel and to explore i wrote another article about this uh a year or two ago about you know art arts is one unique area where it's actually good to waste time you know productivity in the traditional business sense is all about producing and structuring time artists need to experience life experience the world go through ups go through downs and then reconvey their experience in a new form which is their art and i think that the notion of proper breaks and proper scheduling of time is, is essential for the future and and the question though is just how do you layer that over top of the fact that we have these structural changes in the way that streaming platforms and social media platforms are using or, or at least are working and what would be the indicator of a of a of a of an industry where that's working better then? What what would we be able to see in terms of? I mean, would the output? I mean, the, the dream output, right? Is is artists producing more? Or not more, but better music, right? Yeah, for sure. I think, I think, yeah, deepening deepening the art itself. I think we'd have you know indicators. I mean, there's the biggest artists in the world are there's a limited data pool, but when you think about how relatively frequently we see major tours canceled nowadays due to burnout and exhaustion. I think we've mm -hmm. seen that recently from Sean Mendez and Justin Bieber a few years ago. And mm -hmm. just these, I mean, they're anecdotal, but these, these people speaking of people who are sort of, you know, going where no person has gone before, these people are dealing with levels of fame that few human beings have had to deal with. Um, and so as we anecdotally analyze how they're dealing with it, I think that's relevant info. So I'd like to see an, an industry also where, you know, there's fewer examples of major artists saying, hey, I can't do this anymore. I need a break. And we do have to keep in mind that every artist is different and different artists have different tolerances for being in the spotlight and different levels of introversion, extroversion. And so I think to the previous question about, you know, how managers and people in the industry can help artists, the first thing is it's not a cookie cutter approach. Every person is different. And really that's the job of a manager is to understand you're managing a human being also. And so, yes, you're managing a career. Yes, you're trying to grow a career, but if the human being isn't healthy, then the career is not going to happen either way. And so I think another indicator for industry would just be that there's no one size fits all. We have to give leeway to our artists to, treat their careers differently. Some artists have a willingness to, to be on stage and be out and about more frequently than others. And we have to honor that not everyone's in that same boat. 
Yeah, plenty to think about there. And as I said, I will link to your uh, post that you wrote for us, which is plenty of food for thought for everyone who's listening. Of, of, uh, however they are working with artists, there's, there's something to to consider there about uh, our roles in placing pressure on them and what our expectations are as well. So please do check it out. Uh, Piers, before I let you go, one final question, uh, which is uh, the one that provides a little bit of context around all this, which is what is your favorite piece of music? If you could only listen to one song or album, what would it be? Oh, man. I answered this not too long ago, and I'm going to give the same answer because it was okay. a true answer. And it's also relevant because he unfortunately has died now, but it's Harry Belafonte's Calypso album. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which is old school. It was one of the very first albums to ever be certified platinum in the United States. I think maybe the very first one. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, it's a classic. And uh, Harry's no longer with us, so I'll, I'll say him. I love that album. It always brings me happiness. And Right. And, what, what, yeah. what is it you love about it? Is it... Is it- I love it. It's got such a happy feel and such a beautiful sort of Caribbean influence feel, but it also has a lot of depth. If you actually go behind the lyrics, they're, they're actually, you know, some of the songs are protest songs, you know, veiled under these simple melodies and simple rhythms. And, and it's, it's just, it's classic pop music in the sense that it immediately hits you. It's immediately catchy, but when you go under the hood, it has a ton of depth and a ton of meaning. Great. Well, I will link to that as well beneath the podcast and right. <laughs> uh, we can we can all go happily into the future together. All right. Piers Hemwood, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Joe. It's been great to chat with you today. And there we go. Thanks again to Piers. And if you found that useful, please share this podcast on with someone else who you think will get something out of it. You'll find a link to Piers' guest posts and some other links beneath this podcast. And if you want to get in touch, I'd like to hear from you immediately. It's joe at musically.com. That's J-O-E at musically.com. We also have a free weekly email called The Knowledge, which comes out every Friday and uh, lands in your inbox with punishing regularity. Uh, And it's filled with the best bits of analysis, news, marketing insight, and skills from across all of Music Ally's various services. There's a link to sign up below this podcast, uh, and doing so will make you instantly a better human being. Uh, That's it. Uh, Thanks for joining us as always. I've been Joe Sparrow, you've been you, and this has been The Focus Podcast. And until next time, farewell.